KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Friday, August 6th. How do health experts protect their own kids during a pandemic? We'll have that next, just after the headlines. In San Diego, more than 90 percent of COVID-19 cases are among the unvaccinated. But the number of those fully vaccinated and catching the virus is rising. Dr. Francesca Torriani is an infectious disease specialist at UC San Diego Health. We do see more breakthroughs than we ever saw before. And this may simply be because the Delta variant is associated with so much more virus even though there are more breakthrough infections, they're definitely very mild uh, and uh, and short-lived in vaccinated uh, persons. Toriani says the Delta variant is changing the fight against the pandemic, especially with new evidence that fully vaccinated people can still spread the virus once infected. Meanwhile, people who work in healthcare in California will now be required to fully vaccinate against COVID-19. The California Department of Public Health ordered all workers in healthcare settings to get their second dose of the vaccine by September 30th. The director of the State Department of Public Health says vaccine vaccines are how we end the pandemic. The state is also requiring visitors at acute care facilities to be fully vaccinated or test negative for COVID. The new Rady Shell at Jacobs Park will host its first ever concert tonight. The Shell is the new home for the San Diego Symphony. Martha Gilmer is the San Diego Symphony's CEO. We can't wait to share our music at the Rady Shell with the San Diego community and beyond. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon. Hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. As the more contagious Delta variant continues to cause an increase in COVID-19 infections, even in kids, many parents are anxious about how to best protect their children, especially since there's no vaccine available for those under 12. The rules of what is and isn't safe varies from one activity to another. So we decided to ask experts in infectious diseases and public health how they're keeping their own children safe. Here's what they had to say. I'm uh, Rebecca Fielding Miller, and I'm an assistant professor at UC San Diego's um, Herbert Wertheim School of Public Health and Human Longevity Science. So I have one daughter. She's three. She'll be four next month. We were actually lucky enough to be in um, what's called the open label part of the trial. So we know that she got the actual vaccine because she's in the part where they're trying out different um, doses to see how kids react. So. We know she got the real vaccine and and we know how much, which is really exciting. Hi, I'm Corinne McDaniels-Davidson. I'm the director of the San Diego State University Institute for Public Health. I'm an epidemiologist and I have three children, uh, almost eight-year-old, a four-year-old, and a -a one-and-a-half-year-old. My children are not able to be vaccinated yet. They are uh, signed up for clinical trials, but we haven't gotten the call yet. 
Christian Ramers, uh, MD, MPH. I am an infectious disease specialist and chief of population health at Family Health Centers of San Diego. I have a 16-year-old boy and a 13-year-old girl. Both of my kids are fully vaccinated. With school starting back for many students, the first thing we asked was if they feel safe about sending their children back to school or daycare. When everything closed down, um, we had to find a new childcare site, like a lot of people last March. And one of my highest priorities was finding a place with really good ventilation. So we actually chose a daycare that at the time was entirely outdoors. The kids are always outside. Um, and it's very small. There's about 10 families and the parents all have really good communication. Um, now the parents are all vaccinated and we all cheered one another on as we all got our vaccines. My daughter has actually been in a, a public a charter school, a middle school, and they've been mostly online and are just moving into sort of hybrid type situation. And yes, we are going to be sending her. Uh, and again, a lot of it is behavior. Um, she is very, very attuned, you know, having seen all of the interviews that I've done. And, and uh, you know, we talk a lot at home about how to keep yourself safe. Um, and she's very interested in, in going back to school in person and will be wearing a mask as well. It was a tough decision figuring out uh, whether we should send our kids back to school and daycare. Ultimately, we needed childcare for the younger two in order to continue working. Luckily, our uh, place of childcare is at the SDSU Children's Center and their precautions that they have taken went far and above and beyond what was recommended. And I felt really comfortable with the decision to send them there with the ventilation, the outside time, the masking, the contact tracing. So the younger two have been in, in daycare since last fall. My oldest, the soon to be eight year old, we did not send her back to school last spring. Um, we decided to keep her remote and finish the year that way. She will go back in the fall. She'll be at a small school with small class sizes and uh, strong masking and ventilation. So how comfortable are they with their children participating in group activities and playing outside? I still, I choose things that are very low risk as much as I can manage things that are outdoors. But really, we're not doing any other group activities besides childcare and a, an outside music class where everybody's six feet away from everybody else. And I, I'm personally not comfortable with anything besides that at the moment. In terms of group activities, it's a little trickier. Um, I'll give you an example. This weekend, we had a, a couple of families get together and we really had to reach out to all the parents and communicate about vaccination status. All the families and kids that were eligible were vaccinated, but there were some below age 12. And we had to do testing uh, to know that it was really safe to be together. And then those kids that were less than age 12 actually wore masks indoors. So it takes a lot of management, um, a lot of discussion uh, about how to mitigate your risk and how to decrease your risk. And we try to spend as much time outdoors as possible. We feel comfortable playing at the playground if there are very few other children. And we try to go at the non-peak times. We do ask our children to mask if there are other children present. Um, even if they're a little bit far away, we just like to model that behavior and whoever is with them, be it their father or I, we also mask so that, that they have some solidarity there. Other outdoor activities we're pretty careful about. We you know, will go outside and play catch with the neighbors and things like that, but nothing that's um, in too close of proximity. 
And finally, we wanted to know if there is any difference in how these experts approach this pandemic as parents versus professionals. I've had friends and family that have died from COVID. Um, so I take it seriously as a provider and I take it even more seriously uh, as a way to protect my family. I try not to speed time, but I so wish my children were over the age of 12 so they could be vaccinated right now. I think that especially going back to school um, and having a lot of children congregated all together, it would be ideal for all children age 12 and up to be vaccinated. A lot of people think that kids aren't affected by COVID and they absolutely are. We know that about 2% of kids who get COVID will require hospitalization. That seems really small until you consider that here in California, we have 9 million children. And once you take 2% of that, that's quite high. We also know one in every 3,200 about will we'll get Miss C. And that's also not something that we want to mess around with. And we just don't know the long-term impacts of COVID. We see a lot of post-viral illness and I'm not comfortable with my kids being exposed to that. And we know that the vaccines are absolutely safe in those 12 and older. I'm, I'm in public health and public health is really about how do we um, keep everybody safe, treat everybody well, and make sure that everybody has the opportunity to be as healthy as possible. And I want every child to have the same opportunity to be healthy and safe and protected, just like I want that for my daughter. So there's no advice that I would give for somebody else that isn't what I would do for my kid. That was Rebecca Fielding Miller, an assistant professor at UC San Diego of Public Health, Dr. Christian Ramers, an infectious disease specialist and chief of population health at Family Health Centers of San Diego, and Corianne McDaniels Davidson, director of SDSU Institute for Public Health. And this segment was produced by KPBS's Emmalyn Mohebi. California Governor Gavin Newsom has been fighting to officially label the September 14th recall election as being the work of national Republicans and Trump supporters in the election voter guide. And he got a tentative victory this week in a Superior Court ruling. Sacramento Superior Court Judge Lori M. Earle issued a tentative ruling earlier this week rejecting objections by recall organizers. They had argued that Newsom's claim is factually untrue because almost half of the candidates running in hopes of replacing him are not Republicans. Earl says Newsom is alleging that the recall organizers and backers are Republicans and Trump supporters, which the judge says is true. Dr. David Schechter is a California recall expert who's now provost at the University of Southern California Upstate. He says Newsom's team understands that voter guide language can be a key in flipping undecided or unprepared voters on Election Day. They obviously feel that this language will help them out in the long run and that tying Trump to the recall efforts is only good news for them in hopes of swaying things a couple points here and a couple points there. That will make all the difference in question one on the ballot this year. The judge's ruling is tentative. Hours after issuing the ruling, she heard oral arguments from both sides and could either stand by or change her decision after considering those arguments. Meanwhile, four candidates hoping to replace Governor Gavin Newsom in the recall election squared off in a debate in Southern California. Cap Radio's Nicole Nixon. Has more. The recall hopefuls, all Republicans, spent much of the 90 minutes attacking Newsom. 
Former San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner touted his record working with the city's Democratic Majority Council and says as governor, his priority would be to make California more affordable. I put forward the largest tax cut in California history for our middle class because we need it. Because our state's too expensive and Californians are leaving and voting with their feet. Businessman John Cox, who lost to Newsom in 2018, tried to one-up Faulkner with his own preview of a tax plan. I'm going to be announcing a 25% across-the-board tax rate cut for every Californian, the largest tax cut in the history of this state. Former Congressman Doug Osi slammed Newsom's approach to addressing the skyrocketing homelessness rate. What we're doing isn't working. We need to change. We need to get treatment for the drug addicted. We need to get treatment for the mentally ill. We need to stop calling failure success. If Newsom is ousted, his replacement would face resistance from the legislature, which is held by Democrats. Assemblyman Kevin Kiley, speaking quickly, says he has a strategy. I know that the one thing legislators respond to is political pressure, the fear of losing their job. And having just seen the governor lose his job, there will be a unique opportunity to bring fundamental reforms on issues like the cost of living, rising crime rates, and school choice. Every active voter will be mailed a ballot for the recall beginning in mid-August. And that was Cap Radio's Nicole Nixon. Two candidates, radio host Larry Elder and reality TV star Caitlyn Jenner, skipped the debate due to prior commitments. Newsom was also invited, but he wasn't there. Coming up, some animals at the San Diego Zoo have tested positive for COVID-19, and now zoo officials are working to get about 250 animals vaccinated against the virus. We'll have that story next, just after the break. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The San Diego Zoo and Safari Park are moving quickly to vaccinate about 250 potentially vulnerable animals against COVID-19. The vaccination program is stepping up after more animals have tested positive, including five of the zoo's six Sumatran tigers and two snow leopards. It's not entirely clear how the animals caught the virus, but new masking requirements are now in place for all staff members. Zoo officials hope to complete the first round of vaccinations this week. Jonathan Wozen is the biotech reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune, who's been covering the story. He spoke with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Kavanaugh. Here's that interview. Now, is this a major outbreak of COVID in the zoo and safari park? 
So it's not a major outbreak, but we've seen several recent examples over the past couple of weeks of animals testing positive at, at both the zoo and safari park. So this week, the safari park announced that five of the six Sumatran tigers they have uh, have tested positive, and three of the five have fairly mild COVID symptoms, mostly coughing, and the tigers seem a bit more lethargic than they usually are. Uh, last week, we know that the two snow leopards at the zoo uh, also tested positive for the virus, and symptoms were pretty mild you know, there as well. Those snow leopards basically recovered is what I'm told. So Zoo and Safari Park have, I believe, in total you know, upwards of 12,000 animals from a, you know, hundreds of different species. So we're not talking about you know, major outbreaks. But we are talking about several recent examples of transmission, presumably from uh, staff members to some of the wildlife. Do vets know which animals are susceptible to COVID and which aren't? So I wouldn't say they know completely which animals are susceptible or not, but it is clear over the past year that different types of cats, different types of felines can get the coronavirus. Uh, I think primates, uh, unsurprisingly, since they're very closely related to us, are also considered susceptible. And then there are other species which the zoo thinks to various degrees may also be susceptible. The list of animals they're trying to vaccinate spans everything from, as I mentioned, some primates and cats, uh, hyenas, I think otters were on the list. So there's a whole lot of species that may have some degree of vulnerability, uh, but it's not clear exactly how much. How are these animals diagnosed? So they're diagnosed initially because keepers are keeping a close eye on them. And if they see, in the case of the tigers, they noticed that one of the, actually the youngest tiger in the safari park wasn't eating as much as he usually does and wasn't as active as he usually is. So they did a stool sample. So as opposed to a swab up the nose or down the throat, they basically collect stool and do the same type of testing that you would do on people to detect the genetic material from the virus. And so the zoo has an internal lab where they test those samples. They send them out to a state lab to confirm that. And then they send those results out to a national lab as well. Has any zoo animal uh, become severely ill or died of COVID? No, uh, yeah, that, that has not happened uh, so far. And, and all these cases have been you know, fairly mild. Now, the working theory is that the zoo staff has spread the virus to the animals. Is it common for coronaviruses to be transmissible from humans to animals? It's not considered to be common, but it's definitely known or believed to happen. And it's probably not too surprising that we're seeing that happen now when you think about what's going on in terms of the surge of new Delta cases, Delta-driven uh, cases here in San Diego, where you know, we're routinely seeing 700, 800, you know, 1,000 plus new cases of the coronavirus in the region. So it's probably not a coincidence that we're having a surge among people. And in some cases, uh, that, that seems to be crossing over to uh, animals. I mean, what, what, one little thing that's interesting is that the zoo is working with Scripps Research to do genetic sequencing on the viral samples that they're detecting in their wildlife. Uh, so far, they only have results from the two snow leopards, which apparently didn't have the Delta variant. They had some other uh, strain of the virus. But uh, yeah, the working theory is that folks who are carrying the virus 
but don't have symptoms are, are still transmitting it in a few cases to these animals. And can the animals transmit the virus to each other? That's not completely clear, but when I spoke with uh, Lisa Peterson, who's executive director of Safari Park, that, that is what they think happened in the case of the tigers, for example, where five of the six uh, tigers tested positive. They think that uh, even though those tigers aren't kept in a sort of a shared open space, they are able to sniff each other through an enclosure or through a cage, essentially, and, and have a little bit of contact that way. So yes, the, the thinking is that the animals are spreading it to each other. That was one of the reasons why once the first couple gorillas tested positive back in January, uh, the, the safari park expected that eventually the rest of the troop would probably test positive as well, uh, just because they have a lot of contact with each other. There's no, obviously no concept of social distancing, and, and they tend to keep uh, these animals together. Uh, even when one or two of them test positive, they think it's still probably better for their health and, and safety to keep them in that uh, group unit. So, so that's uh, definitely something that can happen. How is the vaccination program working at the zoo? Well, first of all, what kind of vaccine are they using? Yeah, so it's a little different of a vaccine from what any of us who are getting vaccinated may have gotten, but not so different. So this is a vaccine made by an animal health company called Zoetis. Actually, Zoetis used to be part of Pfizer, you know, which is notable given that Pfizer is one of the main vaccine developers right now. It, it's a vaccine that delivers a little protein from the coronavirus. So it's not mRNA. It's not one of these other technologies. It's a little bit of protein from the virus that is injected. And that then sparks an immune response that can help prevent against future infections. So it's a two-dose vaccine. In this case, they're spaced uh, three weeks apart. So by the end of this week, we expect that uh, all of the animals that, that are susceptible or thought to be susceptible will have gotten that first dose. And then they'll start doing second doses in the following weeks. And animals contracting COVID is sort of a brand new territory for research. And the zoo apparently is conducting studies on this while they're trying to stop it. Yeah, they're in the early stages of it. But, uh, you know, they are, I think I mentioned a second ago, looking at the different variants that uh, the wildlife are getting. So they can perhaps get a sense of whether certain variants are more likely to crossover from presumably from people to a certain species. So they're doing that in collaboration with Scripps Research. Uh, and, and I know they are going to be paying attention to, you know, looking at things like antibody responses and other types of immune responses um, as the animals get regular uh, health checkups throughout the year. So it's all uncharted territory in the same way that learning about human immunity to COVID has been uncharted. Uh, and and that, that is one of the interesting things to, you know, follow up with them and see what they learn and, and what that means for, you know, future outbreaks and, and how they respond to those. That was Jonathan Wozen, biotech reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune, speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Cavanaugh. And that's it for the podcast for today. Tomorrow, we'll have a special bonus episode of the podcast featuring KPBS's summer music series. In the meantime, be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.
KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.